0: On your plate, is it good? Is it great? Come on, don't hesitate. Sit down with, with the food. Food. When you're cooking at home, want to set the right tone? Just pick up the phone. Sit, Sit on on down, down with the UnBougie Foodie. Food. Good morning, Twin Cities. This is Wesley Wright, your unbougie foodie. (laughs) I am so glad that we are slowly approaching spring because there are so many things that we want to do. I mean, yes, of course, there's the vaccination that is important, but there are other things like food (laughs) that we need to get out there and do. Uh, Many of us are waiting for like farmers markets and so forth to really kind of like open back up um, or even to start. And even though it's going to be a totally different type of atmosphere and everything still, it's just going to be exciting to get out and do things um, slowly, but surely and safely still social distancing and so forth. But, you know, that's important. But I wanted to take this time to once again, thank you all so much for just sitting down with me this morning Uh, It's a nice uh, Sunny day It looks like Barely any clouds in the sky But I'd like you to Join in this conversation Uh, Interesting topics I believe that I'll be Sharing with you this morning Food sovereignty being one of them Um, Learning about some How some enslaved chefs uh, Helped shape America cuisine Um And did you know that black folks at one point were prohibited from having or eating vanilla ice cream? I mean, yeah, I couldn't believe that either. Um, Yeah, there's a whole thing behind that. And yes, because we are focusing on Black History Month, that's part of our history. (laughs) And even though many in America will not want to face certain things, yeah, that's one of them. The racism that we face even with food but again there we have the topics for the day i want to invite you to give a call in you know if you have a, a comment um want to give a shout out or something or just to support uh, the radio station specifically my show please feel free to call 651-200-3479 and once again 651 200 uh, I'd like to also invite you to you know follow me on through social media, which is Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Facebook is the Unbougie Foodie, Instagram is the underscore Unbougie Foodie, and Twitter is at Unbougie Foodie. I also have my website too that I'd like to invite you to uh, visit as well, which is www. Um, you'll be able to hear past episodes. Um, which reminds me, I do kind of have to, to celebrate a little bit and not going to be a whole lot of fanfare and everything. But I just got to tell y'all, this is my 200th show, two hundredth, 200 shows here on the dub at the UnBougie Foodie on 104.7 FM WEQI LP St. Paul. I have to say all of that. 200. I mean, it's to me, it's a milestone. I mean, honestly, when I got to 100, I was like, oh, wow. You know, hey, so cool. Now I'm at 200. 200. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn or anything like that. But before I even got to, I I think maybe I got, I was barely at my 100. And I had an opportunity to meet, um, I guess, someone that I... I, I admire because they've been doing you know, radio work or culinary creative conversations, if you would, which was Lynn Rosetta Casper. And this was some time ago. This was at an event. I think it was probably a year ago, or well, actually a year and a half ago. But um, she was like, keep doing it. I mean, she said these words, keep doing it. And you'll look around and you're you're at five hundred, and I was just like, "Wow, you know, she's been doing it for for forever. or had been doing it for forever before, you know. Then it um, went to Francis Slam um, on the Splendid table, but uh, it's just it's exciting to talk about it and to still be. I'll say excited about doing it. You know, because for a person or for anyone, creative, entrepreneur, someone's interested in having a talk show or whatnot, to be able to continue to see progression, growth, um that you've stuck with it for a time period. That's that's an attribute to you, to your you know, your stick to itness. <laughs> Um great ambition. I mean, so I, I'm encouraging others to, you know, stick with what if it's something passionate that you love doing, uh follow your follow your dream, follow your heart with it. I'm just excited about it. You know. I knew it was coming up. I wasn't gonna kinda make any a big deal about it. Because I, there wasn't really any way to do any type of real fanfare or anything. But I am just glad that I have the opportunity to be able to do this. And have been having the opportunity to do this. Um, 200 shows, y'all. 200. Woo woo. Anyway, let's get started with, with today's show. And, you know, it's it's interesting that we talk about. I don't know. We here we are. We're we're talking about black chefs, or it's Black History Month, and I I want to focus on, um, you know, definitely getting into that the topic of how enslaved chefs helped shape America American cuisine. Um, I'm gonna tell you all just a little story, and it's just really really quick. Um. Int- last year, about the same time, almost to the day, almost. Um, doing a show here, and I talked about you know celebrity chefs um you know the for two first celebrity chefs and this was just specifically they were brothers um James and Peter hemming very uh, um, creative in their uh, in their cuisine and what they created um James specifically he uh, traveled with uh, i believe it was um uh what Thomas Jefferson and went to Paris so he really learned french cooking french style cooking and came back and brought just a wide variety of skills and so forth that american had americas americans had not seen uh and so you know, he passed that on to his brother, Peter, but they were, you know, they were the two that I spoke of at that particular time because they were doing cuisine that folks were like, you know, what is this deliciousness? You know, we, we don't know what this is. We've never seen this or her or tasted these, these things before. Um, there is someone else, and I'll talk about him Very briefly, but the, along with The story, after talking about Those two brothers, I mentioned uh, An award winning uh, You know, author His name is Adrian Miller Adrian Miller uh, James Beard award-winning, uh, writer, uh, NAACP Award winning Writer NWCP award Winning You know, uh, bestowed some award On him as well but he recently did a, a, I guess, a Zoom presentation um, that talked about does soul food have to be does soul food have need to have a warning label, and this was in conjunction with a, a chocolate company, I believe, American Heritage Chocolate, if I'm not, if I recall correctly, um, and they talked about the connection between chocolate and black. People or Black Americans, um, or and just how that whole process of the connection between cacao and Black folks and how they were very connected because of you know the the areas that cacao came from and how you know Black folks that were being enslaved knew how to. Definitely how to um, harvest those crops, how to handle uh, the the cacao, and all of that. Well, after that was done, you know, I, I got to give a shout out to a very close friend, acquaintance, Chef Jametta Raspberry. I really want to thank her. You know, we shared the link. I, I, and anyway, she was like, hey, do you want to kind of like, would you like me to do an introduction? I was like, introduction what i I tell you that very gracious both of them uh, for having willing to you know one to do the introduction the other to say hey you know thanks and he did reply but the interesting thing is about episode 163 so last year episode 163 that i did I didn't realize who I was actually talking about. And so when she indicated, when Chef um, Raspberry said, Hey, do you want an you know, introduction? You know, to Adrian Miller, I didn't put two and two together. <laughs> I had not. So as I was, I'm doing uploads to my, my website and making sure that, you know, uh, things are there. Uh, and I realized as I'm listening to <laughs> my show, I'm talking about the exact same person that I just got introduced to. I was like, what? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I was having a little bit of a fan moment and it was, I'm not really starstruck or anything, but I think it was just, uh, it was so nice to, I guess it's more of an honor and a privilege or whatever to have mentioned or referenced his works um, because I talked about like two or three of his books um, the I guess the most recent one uh, the president's kitchen ca- uh, cabinet I believe uh, was the most recent one that I'm, I'm familiar with uh, and I feel like I have to get that now because I really want to find it I wanna really really want to read it um, but it was just interesting the points that they were talking about uh, on that subject of soul food doesn't really have to have a, a warning label and, and I don't believe it does, but the, uh, the points that they were talking about or that he was, uh, bringing up and how the moderator was asking him questions and how he was answering them was just really insightful. And I thought, um, gosh, I, I need to kind of read more on his, his, his thoughts, if you would. Uh, and then who knew that I'd get an opportunity to get an introduction that was yeah i was i was geeking out a little bit even told my my nephew i was like dude guess who i just had an opportunity to chat with you know but along those lines uh specifically that you know they were enslaved um so those brothers both figuratively and literally and figuratively james and peter they were slaves and they were given the, I'll say Adrian Miller gave and many others gave them the title of the first celebrity chefs. Now, of course there is another person that is also, uh, if you would described as being a celebrity chef. um, And his name was Hercules. He was the, the slave that was cooking for George Washington. So, they really knew their craft, I mean all these these gentlemen um they they really knew their craft I mean if you go out to uh hercules uh, or type in hercule like google you go into type in Hercules and then um cook for George Washington you'll see a picture of him. they have a portrait specifically now the interesting thing about this whole thing is that rather than saying hercules uh cook for George Washington. Um, they have a portrait of george washington's cook, so no name or anything, but clearly because they 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 knew how to their cuisine and what how to present it and so forth it was it's just very interesting that these back then, even before we knew anything about celebrity chefs uh well of course not, but even i'd say within the past. 20 years or so before folks were like oh yeah celebrity chef this and that and so on yeah we had what hundreds of years ago um slaves that were considered celebrity chefs really because they knew their craft they knew how to what the masses needed what the masses m-a-s-s-e-s needed in regards to food uh, as well as how to present it, how to prepare it. But uh, the, specifically this article, how enslaved chefs uh, helped shaped American cuisine, um, you know, uh, prepared by the Smithsonian magazine. It talked about a number of different, of, of other individuals as well. Um, specifically, you know, the ones that I mentioned, of course, but, um, there were, gosh, I'll, I'll just say clearly that with those thoughts of all the people that there, well, not all the people. There were a few individuals. I should change that. It's just a few individuals. There was another gentleman by the name of Emmanuel Jones. Um, you know, of course, along with uh, Chef Hercules but he used his skills to really transition from out of enslavement to have a a successful career so it you could see that all of these individuals they knew how to use their skills to further themselves uh but still their passion they they had that passion to continue on um and, and that's important to that's important to talk about or to uh, to at least mention but on the other side of that, there's the understanding of how black chefs actually were just chefs at that time, anyone that was enslaved and was cooking for folks, how they were treated, you know. And for whatever reason, they felt those that were enslaved and their owners or the families that they were enslaved to and indentured to. They felt that they were happy. That's why you see on things like Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben, you know, these pictures that they have been used for for years and decades, because they felt that, oh, folks were, uh, they were happy to cook for us. They were were very pleased and everything. It's like, no, that's just your... That's just your delusion that you have in your your mind. <laughs> uh, no, that's that's no, that's not the case at all. Uh, here, the information was saying while newly free uh, uh, African uh, Americans fled the plantations to work as housekeepers, butlers, cooks, drivers, Pullman porters, and waiters, the only jobs they could get. Aunt Jemima and Rastus smiled while serving white folks, enhancing the myth that black cooks had always been cheerful and satisfied during slavery and with their current situation. And as we know, we could find them through, you know, black Americana, you know, early 20th century, and we see them. We've already talked about it, Aunt Jemima. Even though that is being changed to some... uh, I forgot what the name that there is and I don't remember. Uh, Yeah, and they're saying even though it's being modified to reflect a more dignified image. (laughs) No. Yeah. So... Here, I mean, we talked. We I'm just mentioning these very briefly because I, I don't want to go into all the what seems like the negative. But always, all the time, you know, these chefs or these cooks were always under the, as they put, use the phrase, the direct gaze of of the the owners or the the white families that they that they were in or they they were serving, you know but they they wielded a great power though a lot because clearly <laughs> they were like the the front uh, honestly you could kind of say the front of the house when it comes down to that called the plantation culture they carried a lot on their shoulders clearly when it came down to guests coming into a plantation or so forth you know visiting the home Yes, they talk about, oh, you know, how wonderful the home is and so forth. But they're looking, the next thing that they're going to be talking about is the hospitality and the type of food that's actually going to be served. That's, these are guests. These, you know, these white families have these guests come over and so forth. So they, if the food wasn't great, (laughs) that looked, that reflected badly on the white family for the family that had these cooks. And that's what I'm saying. That's why the article was saying too that they had a lot of power, even though, you know, of course, at that time you really couldn't say that they did, but still, based on these families and their guests that they invited over, I, yeah, it seems very, I don't know if they just felt uh, I'm too. I have servants that do that. I don't do any type of cooking. I don't know anything about cooking or, or whatnot. It, so many things could have gone wrong or could have happened. To something slipped into the into the meal and everyone happened to get sick, you know. So all of that is talked about in this article. It's a it's a really interesting article. It's a it's a good read. Um but still understand i think understanding that these enslaved chefs they made the best of a bad situation after realizing that okay well I, i'm not leaving here or i don't have i'm not a free person and this is what i have to do or this is what i'm going to have to do i'm going to do it to the best of my ability i'm going to basically shine and, you know, feed this family, teach them the things or at least teach them about my food or the food from my, my culture. And yeah. Talking about a wide variety of different types of foods. One paragraph mentioned that, you know, how they functioned around in the kitchen or in the home specifically as the actual chefs Uh, here. They were, um, they really were 24 hours a day. No matter what, if a, if a guest or family decide member decided that they wanted to have something to eat at 2 AM, they had to be ready and have something readily available. But clearly they had a wide variety of uh, items in which to choose from. They bake breads for the morning. They cook soups for the afternoon and they had feasts for the evenings. They roasted meats, made jelly, cooked puddings. Uh, they crafted desserts, uh, and a lot of times, several times uh, of the day, there would be meals for the whole entire family. And they had to free. They had to feed every free person that passed through the planta- plantation. So as I was talking about that, if a traveler, for instance, showed up at any time, whether it be day or night, there would be some type of bell that would be rung so that the cook could then prepare food. That's, you know, where this guest would be so delighted in everything that they were doing, whether it be biscuits, ham, brandy, whatever the case is, no matter what time it was, like I said, even if it was like two o'clock in the morning or something, yeah, whatever... Whenever that person pleased, they had to, you know, they had to do it. <laughs> so it's interesting. It's, the article goes on and talk more about how important, uh you know, these enslaved cooks were. Because without their knowledge of how to cook things, how to prepare things. There were, you know, these families would be lost. <laughs> they wouldn't know what to do with themselves. There were times where these cooks were overseen by other individuals with notepads and pens or, or just writing instruments. Uh, and they were writing down as they saw them do certain things. And these became future cookbooks. And at first they were referred to as receipts because they would just show or just identify specifically what was in a specific... Uh, and they, let me correct that. They were called receipt books. Uh, it would let uh, that family have those recipes uh, for what they were doing in the in the kitchen. And, you know, it's interesting that they call the receipt books rather than... They call them receipt books rather than recipe. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, again, receipt books. But later on, they're referred to as cookbooks. Um, but they were under that person's watchful eye, you know, not even fully understanding what possibly what measurements are. But, again after seeing maybe a dash of this or a dash of that, you know, they're writing all down all of that information so that it can be retained. And if that person happened to die off the cook, that is, or the chef for the family dies off, there would be someone else that would come in and they would have these receipt books later referred to as cookbooks, that they could show this person here are the here's a, here's what you need to follow to create this meal <laughs> because the family <laughs> didn't do it so again the importance of these uh, enslaved chefs they really did help shape american cuisine um Throughout history, there's much more in the article that talks about the the folklore, the traditions that they had. Um, it, I would encourage you to go out and read it. These are uh, information that you might find very helpful. Um, and uh, as an African-American, Afro-Latino, Latinx person... Um, It's interesting to find out this, you know, find out this history. You know, it just seems like every year or every time doing any type of research, there's some bit of information that I hadn't known before. Uh, And so I just want to bring and share it with you as well. Um, And that's why, again, I I always encourage, please, uh, if you all, there are comments, questions, or just joining the conversation I invite you definitely to call into the radio station. Um, you know, this is a community radio station uh, and my show I feel is for the community. Um, there can be an interchange of knowledge. Hopefully I'm sharing something with you that you find uh, very interesting. And I look forward to hearing from community uh, members, individuals, uh, that have uh, maybe you, if it, it doesn't even have to be the same viewpoint, you can have a, a different viewpoint. <laughs> I know how to agree to disagree <laughs> if needed, um, but interesting points like this, um, I think, is very helpful. And here we're we're coming to the end of Black History Month. I really want to focus again uh, each week on Black History. Black Chefs, black food, uh and what better way than to talk about individuals that actually helped shape the type of cuisine that we have um, taking from their own culture, but then you know their their culinary heritage uh, coming from where they are, whether it be european african Native American, you know these all became and continue to be. Uh, Cuisines that we find within the American culinary world, if you would, and specifically there, you know those uh, those areas, you know those mixtures or cultures or um, from those areas that I mentioned before, they became staples for the Southern food. You'll see the different types of of food that were that were created, especially in the South. But with seasonings that came from all these different um, countries or continents or uh, areas, hot peppers, um, using peanuts, okra, greens, um, favorite dishes like gumbo and West African stews, um, jambalayas, jollof rice. So many of these dishes definitely came from outside of the American, off of American soil. And were brought here, and were they were they celebrated? I mean, several, as though, and I shouldn't say celebrated. They helped again change the landscape of what American cuisine is. Because I think right now, if folks were if folks were to take away those like southern foods or um, seasonings that would not have normally been here on American soil I think folks will be kind of <laughs> the food will be I'm just gonna I'm joking but I'm serious but I'm joking um, food will be kind of like bland <laughs> or not as much seasoning Um. yeah it would be very very different and I think people will get tired of it but anyway, that's you know, that's just one area. That's one topic. I hope you found that uh, interesting. Um there's just so much more. You can actually go out as I mentioned to the Smithsonian magazine um uh, article and it's entitled How Enslaved Chefs Helped Shape American Cuisine. Um check out that article. It's it's a very good read. Um definitely learned uh, some very interesting points shout out to those early celebrity chefs y'all i mean chef hercules uh james and peter hemmings and i can't forget um of course emmanuel jones also as well but i don't think that they were out uh you know trying to avoid working out in the field it's just that they were they were good at what they did when it came down to prepare food. So their slave owners saw that they were good at that and how creative they were at the things that they used or had available to them. And they wanted to uh, have that for it inside the home, inside their home. So interesting, very interesting points. I hope that was Good for you all. Okay, so I have to talk about this. I, I thought it was just it was so sad. Uh, yeah, okay, so I love ice cream and I'm quite sure that many out there do. I was I do. Um but specifically vanilla ice cream, I don't really care for it, I'm gonna say. It's good. I guess maybe it has vanilla bean probably in it or something like that. Maybe I might find it a bit more exciting. But... Yeah, there was a point in American history where... (laughs) Black folks were not to be caught eating vanilla ice cream in public. And that was, of course, in the Jim Crow South. I just thought that was... What? Huh? But for whatever reason yeah that's uh, that was not something that was um, looked upon as acceptable and there were there are two articles uh, kind of one is um, a group that was found on Facebook and they mentioned how uh, and they're unapologetically black Um, they showed some pictures of, of folks kids Children um, eating ice cream, specifically vanilla. But the caption was mentioning that, you know, southern blacks were banned from eating vanilla ice cream during this Jim Crow era, except on the 4th of July. Uh, The racist, uh, the racist, uh, oof, I don't want to concentrate on that. The racist hierarchy in the south manifested in several ways but you know most people didn't know that racism even impacted what foods black folks were able to have to actually buy and consume Maya Angelou mentioned it at one one point in um, either her stories or her poems but it wasn't custom to sell vanilla ice cream to black folks in many parts of the south only on Independence Day and the interesting thing about that is the person that actually perfected the flavor of having vanilla ice cream was a black enslaved person i believe his name was edmund albius he was the one that actually perfected the flavor i mean and and to have the sweetness and, 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 yeah. <laughs> but still, yeah. For whatever reason, yeah. But see, at that particular time, that the way that they had thought about it is because it was white, it re- represented purity and the kindness and everything good in America. It was the American dream. (laughs) And that's why, of course, black folks were not able to eat it. You know, except on Independence Day. And you're probably wondering, okay, well, why on Independence Day? You know, apparently there was some commemoration or speech that was given, but it mentioned... A day that re- well, this was, uh, I believe, it was Frederick Douglass uh, in 1852. He had this railed against that idea, and kind of asked the question, "Why? What? Did, I don't understand. Why is this?" Basically, but really on the, only on the fourth of July. What? But here is his statement. I answer a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim to him your celebration is a sham your boasted liberty an unholy license your national greatness swelling vanity your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless your denunciations of tyrants brass-fronted impudence your shouts of liberty and equality hollow mockery your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him mere bombast fraud, deception, impiety, hypocrisy, and a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages <laughs> I mean here. What what is what is what was the purpose? I mean, you've kept folks, you've kept black folks from eating ice cream that was really <laughs> perfected and made wonderful <laughs> by a black person. Anyway, but the only time that they can have it is what on the Fourth of July because that's when the time that you feel like okay, that's the only day that we. You know, you could have something of ours. No. (laughs) No. And here, this article, I'm getting information from this article, specifically The Guardian, but um, very uh, another famous author, Michael Twitty, Michael W. Twitty, um, you know, is another historian um, talking about um disinformation or, or sharing this information, but again, these principles of of whiteness uh the good it, it was based it was even coming through in food and here a person that was a, a black American a person of color there's no way that they could be eating that on any other day because they don't really represent all that's good in the world or all that's good in America and here you know it was a time that forefathers fought your forefathers fought for this country they organized marches uh, protest lynching (laughs) and you can't have vanilla ice cream It, it's it's interesting that, you know, from that time period, it, it, I mean, it's not that long ago. What, back in the 60s? <laughs> uh, it's not that long ago. I mean, it was okay for, if you were a person of color, yeah, you're regulated to eating chocolate. Chocolate here, that's what you want. which is really sad. A poet had uh, kind of a a very interesting viewpoint on this whole entire thing. When she was a little girl, she went, her parents took her to visit um, Washington, D.C. around Independence Day. And again, around Independence Day, they wanted to treat her to vanilla ice cream at the soda shop. But the waitress refused them service. And so she summed up the whole event or the time that they were there at, in Washington, DC at like this, the waitress was white. The counter was white and the ice cream. I never ate in Washington, DC that summer. I left childhood was white and the white heat and white pavement and white pavement and white stone monuments of my first Washington summer made me sick to my stomach for the rest of the trip anything but anti-american when you have these type of experiences yeah Thank goodness now we have a, a different viewpoint. <laughs> um, we hope. Because I'm quite sure that there are certain, still certain things. Foods. It, believe it or not, I know that this is a thing. I know that this is a thing. There are still places or even restaurants or going out. That folks, certain folks will feel that they will give a look to a person of color. Why are they eating that? Or that's, that's so wrong to even just say, but it is something that is still going on. Now, of course they can't, they won't, it's not like they could stop a person, you know, from eating whatever it is that they want, but clearly, you know, some folks will still put on that face of disgust, and not understanding, and they'll probably put it in the in the in the realm of, well, you're. Can you afford that? I, I've seen it. You know, it's it's so it's so interesting to even like recall seeing something like that, but, or even going to a restaurant to a specific restaurant thinking that there are people that are looking at you because they think that you can't afford the same thing that they're having. That's very interesting. So, I mean, something as, yes, something as simple as ice cream that a black man actually uh, perfected, but you want to prevent other people or prohibit other, other black people from having it. That was back then. Here, this is a little bit more subtly divisive. Um, and, and that's, I'm not saying that you really have to kind of like just watch the other people when you go into a restaurant or anything. It, sometimes it would be very blatant. Other times it, and for if you see yourself as the only person of color in a restaurant and people are watching you or looking at you, um. That's what they're thinking' I'm sorry i if someone wants to verbally fight me on that, you can, but when you've experienced it um you kind of you kind of brush it off because you don't want it to be that part of your the narrative for you and your experience, but having these type of conversations or looking at this um hearing this information discovering this information because I I did not even know this. it reminds you of those experiences that you've had in a space that folks probably thought you weren't uh, really eligible to be in and I mean here there was ice cream back then. That was a simple thing. Ice cream at a soda shop. You know, these Jim Crow laws uh, affected folks in so many different ways. And, you know, again, even in food. Yeah. Quite sure that, you know, if there were ice cream shops or, or uh, soda shops in a black neighborhood i wonder what which i'm kind of answering my own question there really kind of wasn't you always if you did if there was one you have to wonder what is the only what is the type of ice creams that they would actually offer i mean yes of course apparently chocolate because they feel that that's the only thing or the only time but what if in that soda shop or ice cream shop in that predominantly black neighborhood, could they have ordered, or say, "Hey, I'd like to order, you know, a ten gallon, five gallon of vanilla"? What would they say? Would they say, "No, <laughs> uh, we can't sell that to you, possibly," or? Interesting, interesting things to kind of like uh, take into consideration, or history to take into consideration. Um, yeah, very interesting. Uh, I am glad that we are no longer in that realm of history. Uh, at least, not. I want. Do I want to say it, to that extent, where you can't eat a specific type of food and you're prevented or prohibited from it because again I I keep going back it's a simple thing it's ice cream but uh, yeah just because it's white and it's representing all that's good and sweet in America really (laughs) That then brings us to a, a point that I feel, uh, and not even a point, it's. It was an article on. Let's see, there was an article in Canada. Uh, duh, 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 I believe it was about black. Nope. Anyway, there was a story about Can- in Canada, specifically in Canada, that talked about an organization that focused on black Canadians that were struggling with food insecurity. So this organization put together this program of being able to grow have there were plots of land that they had available and they had the ability to grow different types of foods uh and basically share it with uh, these folks uh that were not having the opportunity to you know get the food that they need I think i found the article i want to i want to give a shout out specifically or not even really a shout out but just let you know specifically what the article uh the organization is i believe it is called what is it uh ta-ta-ta. african food basket i believe it's what it is what it's referred to as but describing it um yeah, uh, it is so here the reason why it actually came up, why they came up with this specifically, I mean with Canada, in Canada, they were again as I mentioned, uh, black uh, communities were very high uh, in rates of food insecurity uh, they looked at statistics in Canada from 2017, 2018 and it showed that uh nearly 30% of black households were food insecure which is the highest rate in Canada there were other organizations that were trying to do what they could if you would but unfortunately it's not it wasn't they were weren't being very successful let me just put it that way <laughs> so there was some groundwork that was laid to address that uh anti-black racism across you know areas of society and you know the area uh the program of african food basket uh it was leading the way here's this program that was leading the way in food justice and food sovereignty and you're probably wondering okay well what really is food sovereignty if you would and what does it mean that's canada but here even in the united states we also have and you know, I'm just going to say, BIPOC communities, Black Indigenous, uh, uh, or people of color. These communities are having their own situations with food insecurities. But Black food sovereignty is about controlling your own destiny and determining your own future as self determining Black communities. Meaning that you're able to grow, have land, and understand that relationship uh, with food and the land. Understanding how to nourish yourself from the fruit from the food that grows from that land, and understanding the cycle. having that relationship with the land and you know it's nourishing you and the food that's coming from it and how you need to actually work uh, also to take care of that land as well but it's also about building any type of institutions that have your best interests at heart you know, with having core purposes that are for black people and led by black people and you know you're thinking okay well why is it so important why are we talking about this so much right now yes because it's black history month too because it always seems I, I don't really see any like black farms and i talked about this in the past or you know had a moment of discussion or whatever about this in the past but it's clear that it's important for us to focus on this in the community if we have to you have to take steps <laughs> your own steps and look out for your community or for your own family and I've seen more and more you know certain black families if they have space in their yard, they'll start a little garden for themselves and especially if it's those you know fruit some fruits and definitely vegetables that you could grow on your own. Uh, Without having to go to the grocery store. Because believe it or not. Y'all going to the grocery store. To go buy your own like vegetables. That you could possibly grow yourself. um, Can be expensive. But again. Going very quickly back to. Why black food sovereignty is so important. When ancestors were. Actually taken you know from. From Africa or uh, other. And then brought to the western hemisphere. You know, their their lives, their health, wasn't really the concerns of any type of colonists or colonizers. They were just brought here to work, work the land. And again, they were just regarded as property. So, I mean, we're we're out of that to a, a certain extent or to a certain degree, but we really have to fight that, uh, you know, that subjugation. And find ways to embolden our our culture, even for even more so. Uh, understanding that we have a legacy with with food and with land, and we have to look after our own health. Basically, there are a number of chefs within you know the the communities in the twin cities that are finding ways and that are focusing on you know either classes or the type of cuisine that is very common within you know black communities and finding ways to make it more healthy um and not necessarily denying them um certain Foods and so forth, but at least, be helping them to focus on looking after more of your health, um, more understanding that you have to take back um, that understanding, and realize that the only way to do that is by putting for having that mentality of black food sovereignty. Really quick. There are some principles that go along with that that I'm just going to kind of briefly run through. Um, and it says six food sovereignty principles. One f- focuses on food for people. Two values food providers. Three localizes food systems. Four makes decisions locally, meaning that it's for y'all, you make it for yourself. Five builds knowledge and skills and six works with nature so all of these things need to be taken into consideration when we are considering food sovereignty um, again those six principles are really important to remember and to recall um, so that you can focus on understanding how important food is for you and to the, a black community or to um, you know persons of color So just hope that you'll take all of that into consideration. We could definitely go into further conversation about this at a later time. I would actually love it, really. So I hope that you'll join me for a future show where we'll be able to go further into considering what those sovereignty principles are. Uh, I want to invite you back next week. I will be here at 10 a.m., every Saturday right here on 104.7 FM WEQI. thank you again for tuning in and as I end every show I want to encourage you never to let anyone tell you what type of foodie to be because it is food that brings us together and the stories and experiences that thr- strengthens us as a community until next time people peace and now taste it Sit down down with the umbuja food day.